thank you so much for joining us. I'm used to saying good evening on these webinars, but um, we're sort of in uh, Australian time because we have quite a few people from Australia on this course. Um, uh, on this call. Uh, so good morning or good evening. If you're in Fremantle, it's around about 5pm for you. If you're in Sydney, it's around about 8pm. And for us in the UK, it's obviously around about nine o'clock. Um, we've got a, a fantastic uh, lineup this morning for you. So we'll be discussing the impact of Catholic education in civil society and the wider realm. Um, and we have um, my colleague, um, Maggie Ferguson, who's the literary editor of The Tablet, uh, will be hosting uh, this particular webinar for us. Um, so uh, we will have a chat function. So if you'd like any questions or you'd like to ask the panel any questions throughout this webinar, then uh, please just put them in the chat function. I'll pick them up and then I'll weave them into the, um, into the talk. So without further ado, um, I'll hand over to my colleague, Maggie. Morning, Maggie. Good morning, Amanda. Thank you very much. And um, welcome to our incredibly distinguished panel. Uh, they're so distinguished that if I was to give any kind of full CVs for them, um, we'd be here well over an hour. So I'm going to say something very briefly about each of them. Um, Professor René Kola Bryan is the national head of the School of Philosophy and Theology at the University of Notre Dame, which is a Roman Catholic private university in Australia. Jenny Sinclair is the founder director of Together for the Common Good, a charity dedicated to spiritual and civic renewal. Paul Stubbings is the head teacher of the Cardinal Vaughan Memorial School, a Catholic state secondary school in West London. And Raymond Friel is the CEO of Caritas Social Action Network, an agency of the Bishops Conference of England and Wales committed to tackling domestic poverty. He has also decades of experience of working in Catholic schools, including as a head teacher, and he has written extensively on education. So let's uh, kick off with a first, uh, I hope, reasonably simple question, and I'm going to ask uh, Rennie to answer it first. Um, what distinguishes a Catholic education from simply a Christian education? And what would you hope to see as the hallmarks of men and women who have had a Catholic education? Well, you said that the questions weren't going to be difficult, Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, it's a wonderful question. So I think that the one of the distinguishing characteristics, of course, um, for a Catholic education would be that it stands within a particular tradition. And it's a tradition that involves us in a view of the whole of reality, which um, is expressed, but also very concretely lived through the sacramental life. So we think of that as really important when we send our children to primary school, that they have this sacramental education, that they learn what it means, that they were baptized and they have the first Holy Communion and confirmation. But I actually think that the that a Catholic education is one in which one continually grows in understanding what it means to live out that sacramental life. So it's sort of this ongoing formation that has a really deep sense of what it means to be part of God's world and, and God's creation and, and what it means to be ultimately, hopefully, in the communion of saints. Mm, um, brilliant. So, yeah. That's a very inspiring um, kickoff. Raymond, what would you say to that? Uh, morning, Maggie. Well, Renee, great, great, lovely, lovely answer. I mean, to add to that, um, 
I think uh, I think the sacramental imagination is, is is vitally important. I think we give our, our young people a, a different view of, of the world. I think we give our young people um, a different vision of of the human being, a different anthropology, if you like. And even within the Christian traditions, there are different you know views of of the human being. I think the Catholic view of the human being is is hopeful, um, is is realistic, uh, but ultimately uh, joyful. Um, we, we have our liturgical year, which is a great source of inspiration. Already referred to the communion of saints, the, the liturgical year. We're coming yeah. up for, for Lent now, celebration of the saints to great role models. Uh, and we also have at the heart of our schools, um, the Eucharist, which is something that would, I think, distinguish a Catholic school from other Christian schools. Uh, and that's, I mean, I've been in schools where the Eucharist has been celebrated. Uh, by Catholics and, and non-Catholics alike, and, and it's a very powerful moment for any Catholic school to gather together um, in, in Eucharistic Thanksgiving. Thank you, that's wonderful. Well, um, Paul, perhaps you could pick up from there. Thank you. Um, it's, it's a really interesting question, and of course, um, building upon the two um, very full and helpful answers that have been given, um, um, I would suggest um, that another aspect of a Catholic education um, is, is, I think our function is to present the unchanging verities um, of existence um, to a constantly and increasingly rapidly changing world. Um, and that therefore, building on that sacramental um, tradition and building on the liturgical rhythms and movements um, it's 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 all about um, as i say finding the pupils where they are in the way that the world is currently constituted um, and presenting that um, unchanging aspect um, in a way that's relevant to them yeah lovely thank you jenny uh, thanks maggie and however hello everyone and, and lovely to be here um, I'd just love to, to add to that. I loved all those answers, absolutely wonderful. My interest is, is further into adult, um, adulthood as well. So I think that um, one of the distinguishing characteristics needs to be um, an integrated understanding within life about purpose and vocation. So very much in terms of Blessed John Henry Newman, um, you know, I've been given some def definite service and a link in a chain and so on. So I think that that is a distinguishing feature, or it should be. But often, often what happens is after the formation in school, um, things fall off as people move into adulthood. So I'm particularly interested in, in how the Catholic um, social doctrine can, can continue that formation into adulthood. And so from my point of view, I would be looking for, in terms of hallmarks, um, Catholic men and women, I'd be looking for that sense of an integrated understanding of their life within the context of the world, an understanding of the uh, primacy of God, the sanctity of the human person, that human beings shouldn't be commodified or de dehumanized, value of family, um, family and communities shouldn't be subordinated to the powers of state and money power. So that, that sort of thing. And, and also an understanding of subsidiarity and the balance in all things. Lovely. Thank you all uh, very much. And this is just a quick question. If you can't think of an immediate answer to it, uh, it's, it's fine just to leave it. Um, but can each of you think of a really inspiring example of somebody in public life who has carried their edu Catholic education into adulthood, into civic life? 
Um, who should we start? Reni. Well, the first person who comes to mind is um, is our relatively new vice chancellor, Francis Campbell, yeah, who yes, has joined us absolutely. from having been at St Mary's. So, yes, and who has spoken at Cardinal Vaughan um, a few years ago, Paul. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna copy you, Rene. Um, <laughs> no, 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 Francis Campbell's been a great friend to Cardinal Vaughan, um, and he um, he is energetic. Um, forward-looking um, and thoroughly um, wedded to the to the integration of the whole person. So sorry, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to um, jip out and uh, say the same answer. That's absolutely yeah, right. He's just so gracious about everything. Yeah. I have to say, sorry. when I was chatting about this question with um, uh, a friend a few days ago, uh, I said, what would, how would you answer this question? He said, the person I would choose is Raymond Friel. So... Uh, Raymond, ah. you. <laughs> oh, me then? No, uh, I, I'm, I'm the least, uh, the least to worry about. Frank Cottrell Boyce. Ah, I completely am with um, you there. Yes. There, there's, a, there's, a, yeah, yesterday I was at a presentation uh, in in Westminster to celebrate the 175th anniversary of the Catholic Education <laughs> Service, and it produced this lovely little uh, book called Catholic Schools Partners Information. And Frank is quoted in it as saying, and it won't take long, I was educated by the De La Salle brothers. They gave me a different map of the world. They were very closely tied to the local community, but also profoundly connected to all the places where the order taught in France, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Malaysia, in a thousand practical ways. They made us feel part of the global community. They nurtured my faith and gave me aspiration not the corrosive material aspirations with which we are being force fed by adverts and peer pressure, but the real aspirations to happiness and fulfillment. And Frank lives that out in his writing and his, yeah. his online presence and his talks every day. So that's off to Frank. Yeah, I know he, he, really, he really is a star. Yeah, Jenny. So I'd, I'd like to give a, a shout out actually to the anonymous people, like for example, the volunteers of the St. Vincent de Paul Society, the SVP. So rather than focusing on a famous person, I think there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people um, who've had a Catholic formation who are really living it out every day in terms of being a good neighbor, yeah. of um, looking out for, for their fellow human beings, fellow citizens, who may be going through a hard time and reaching out to them and offering help in practical ways and accompanying each other through the difficulties and struggles of life. Wonderful. Okay, that's lovely. Um, this is a question. The next question is really for Paul and Rennie, but um, but if Raymond and Jenny want to come into that's that's lovely. Um, what are the pros and cons of educating Catholic students exclusively? with other Catholics. And we have to say at this point that Cardinal Vaughan Memorial School is, I think your pupils are all Catholic, is that right? All, all bar literally two or three. Yeah, but uh, but in Notre Dame, Reni, it's it's a lot of your students are not Catholics, is that That's is that correct, right? Maggie, that's so, right. Reni, yeah. why don't you kick off on that one? Sure, I mean, the pros, I've, um, the pros are that, once you get a critical mass, I think, of people who are looking in the same direction, it just means that a lot of the work is already underway. And I think that you can go deeper in some respects in understanding a tradition. 
I think that the con of having everyone Catholic is that, um, if I can go in that direction first, the con of having everyone Catholic would be that we can become a little bit too inward looking and we might not appreciate that there are some perspectives in the world that we really need to to look at and to confront and to interrogate. I think that the Catholic intellectual tradition is at its best when it's looking at something new and really shedding light on that from, from its deep understanding of the world. Um, I think that the the pros of being in a mixed, was that part of your question as well, yeah, Maggie? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, the pros of being in a in a mixed environment um, are precisely that Catholics can learn a range of views and really come to understand them. And also that there can be a work of invitation going on, of invitation and encounter. So of really inviting people into understand a tradition mm -hmm. um, to which we are deeply committed. Mm -hmm. um, a con of having a mixed cohort, I suppose, is that sometimes one is doing so much work I'm just thinking in the university setting doing so much work in trying to get people on the same page and maybe looking at a at a text that comes from our tradition that one feels like one has to spread oneself a little bit too thin mm -hmm. so it's sort of the catch-up work um, can make life difficult just on an intellectual level but the formation that can happen for everyone when we're looking at diverse beliefs and diverse perspectives, I don't that I don't think that that is really replaceable. I think that it's it's actually really important mm -hmm. to have, particularly in a tertiary environment, um, to have people of different views so that they can really wrestle with their understanding of the world. Kind of cross fertilize. Yes, that's right. Um, lovely, Paul. Another really good question. Um, I think the pro um, of, of of having um, all Catholics in one institution together, as it were, is, is as we were talking about earlier on, because, because Catholicism is kind of, a, kind of a growth of self-understanding rooted in tradition and sacramentality, that, 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 that's more easily promoted if everyone is Catholic, everyone's literally buying into the same viewpoint. So that, that's kind of self-evidently and axiomatically true. Um, I think that the, the cons are actually more interesting um, there, there is the danger um, of, to be blunt, um, of self-referentiality, um, where, where it becomes excessively introspective um, and, and the tradition, um, instead of becoming um, a vehicle to, to growth and self-understanding, both as a communion and as individuals, actually becomes an end in itself. Um, and the tradition um, can, can begin to turn potentially into some sort of idol mm. where, it's, where it's tradition first and living God second. So the, the con of Catholic education, if it's only Catholics or all in, in the same integrate, is Catholic education is, is not, it's what happens in a school, in my case, rather than the people who are in it. Catholic education shouldn't be a reward for the good Catholics. Mm. Catholic mm. education is something completely different. So um, and the and and the worst form of self-referentiality um, can be kind of um, um, the potential um, for not an intolerance of other religious views and faiths, um, but an ignorance of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's 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 the key point I would say. Yeah. 
Uh, Jenny and Raymond, do you want to say anything very briefly on that question or should we move on? We've got a lot to get through, so it, 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 but if you want to come in on that one, do say. Right. Jenny, Jenny, you want to come in? You go first, Raymond. Uh, I mean, well said by Paul and, and I mean, I think the 100% Catholic school is very rare. Um, and I think I think I think everyone buying in is, is probably un unlikely because it, even when you get a room full of Catholics or a school full of Catholics, you don't get homogeneity. I mean, you, you get all, all sorts of all, all sorts of differences and distances from from practice from the church, especially among young people who are questioning and growing and are often estranged from the from, from the church. Uh, Catholic schools, certainly in England and Wales, uh, it's about 66 percent. Of the population are, are Catholic, um, and it includes uh, an increasing number of Muslim pupils. Twenty-six thousand Muslim pupils in schools, uh, and that's a great enrichment. Mm. As Paul says, you know, we learn from each other, and we, we learn about other faith traditions and expressions. And I think that's really important. We don't we don't want to create a kind of um, anything like a bubble or an exclusive mentality. Okay, that's great, Jenny. Very very briefly would be just, yeah, just very briefly. Um, just, just about that idea of um, the, the Catholic community becoming self-referential. I, I definitely think that is a risk and it's a, it's a creative risk, but um, the problem is if, the, if the, 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 the formation becomes too immersed in, in this one culture, then when they do encounter other denominations and other faiths, there is a sense to, uh, of, of con continuing to use their own Catholic glossary the, the, uh, the framework of, of language, of the way that they describe and understand themselves. And I work a lot across the, across the churches and um, sometimes I, I do find that the Catholic um, community understands itself very well, but it struggles sometimes to cross over in, into, into other cultures. So I think for the, the way that the world is now, it's absolutely vital that, that young people grow up with that sense of, of their place in the world and the relationship of Catholicism with other traditions, not least because the church itself now is so vulnerable. And so if you grow up in a, in a strong Catholic environment, you could be you know, have a false idea of your own strength. And yeah. I think it's important that the church understands its vulnerability in the context of society at the moment. Thank you very much. Thank um, you. Could I follow up from that? I'm sorry, I'm sorry in a rush, but... Um, Jenny, I think that's really, really interesting. But to, to, just to pick up that point, Karen, with it ever so slightly further, um, the self-referentiality thing. Um, there, there is an aspect where, where because of the principle you're referring to, Jenny, where you don't want the Catholic school degenerating into a Catholic theme park. Mm. Um, you've got to prepare um, pupils um, for becoming active citizens within the 2020s, 2030s, and beyond. And you don't get that by self-referentially looking backwards, usually to the 1950s. That's the, that's the kind of reactionary's favorite decade of choice for some reason. I don't know why it's always the 1950s. Yeah. But, but, but it, a Catholic school um, must not ever degenerate into some sort of theme park. It has to be a living organic entity and therefore it cannot be looking in on itself constantly. And there's more danger of that in, in pure, Catholicism, 100% institutions. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you very much. No, that's burden myself. That's really great. Um, so I just, as a kind of tiny illustration of uh, uh, the next question, I was chatting with a friend um, earlier in the week who had a son at one of the big London uh, state secondary schools. He wasn't thriving there. Uh, my friend took him away. He went to 
a big private boys' school in London. And having been at a school where there was literally no outside space, my friend said to me he was now at a school where there were 15 cricket pitches. So if we have concerns about the bubble effect of Catholics being educated only with other Catholics, I know Raymond used the word bubble, we might also worry uh, that in Catholic private schools or universities, Catholics are only mixing with students who are well off and they won't therefore move into civil life caring passionately about a preferential option for the poor. Um, Rennie, do you want to kick out a kick off on that? Because I know your university is private. Is that right? That's right. It is yeah. private. And um, I've also been very privileged to be working with Mary Aikenhead Ministries, which is um, which was formed. Well, the Sisters of Charity started some wonderful girls colleges and part of their charism is that they really take this preferential option for the poor quite seriously. And that's something that on a very practical level, I think that all Catholic educational institutions really need to look at quite seriously. One of the sayings that I learned just yesterday of the Sisters of Charity is that, let me see if I can get this right, that though that the poor should receive with love what the rich can pay for. And this was within the, within the context of education. And that really struck me as quite true that Catholics, if we really believe everything that we say that we believe about education, about how it's holistic, about how every person is made in the image and likeness of God and is made to know, love and serve God, then we really have a duty out of love to reach out to those who can't receive that education unless we generously give. Yeah. And as we all know, it's in giving that we receive. So it's this um, this wonderful act of charity, I think, that any educate any Catholic educational institution can reach out to others. And I think that does have to be quite practical. It needs to. We need to always be looking for possibilities to give scholarships to go out into areas where kids might not have thought that they had the opportunity for an education might not have really known what that was and to really appreciate that education isn't only about academic excellence but it's really about a holistic formation so mm -hmm. we're forming hearts with minds with bodies like it's the it's the whole deal mm -hmm. um and so it, there's we have to go out there to those who might need material wealth, but also I think that there's a spiritual wealth yeah. that we point. need to be yeah. sharing. Maybe wealth isn't the right term, but but I think you you understand what I mean. That yeah, that, I can stop you there because because yeah. uh, I'm just I'm just conscious. Yes, of course, of course. Thinking, um, Clark, Paul, uh, you are a state school. Um, I don't know what you feel. I know that from having interviewed you for the tablet that your salary, I'm not going to tell everyone what it is, but is about a third of what you might be earning in a uh, private boys school in London. Uh, therefore, a lot of people must be being sucked away from good Catholic education. Um, what do you think? Yeah, um, they still pay me well, so I'm, I'm, yeah, that, that's fine with me. Um, I think um, I think that the parable of the rich man and Lazarus um, is, 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 is massively applicable here. Um, I teach at a state school and I'm, I'm not teaching at a state school because I've got any ideological objection to people who've got enough money to pay for an education. It's not I don't have a problem with that at all, because money is, is a neutral commodity. Um, it, it's how it's used. 
Um, and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, um, I think is, is incredibly important because it shows us um, that it took me a long time to work out that parable. Um, what was he doing in the underworld? Um, he was a perfectly nice man bothered about other people. And the issue was, was not that he was in any sense unpleasant about the poor people around Lazarus at the gates, it's that the money meant that he simply didn't notice them. He didn't see them. Having seen them and found out, he's fine and he, and he wants to do something. And so the issue, I think, for Catholic education is, is money represents um, a particular spiritual danger. It does. You know, if you don't do something positive with money, you are liable um, to um, you are liable to see less. And therefore, um, as long as as long as Catholic institutions are alert to that danger and don't fall into the trap of thinking money is a bad thing in itself, because it isn't. Um, that's the key point. Um, so so Catholic institutions, private or state, must constantly, constantly, constantly have square and centre the preferential option for the poor, whether they are moneyed or not. Mm -hmm. It's not the money that's the problem, it's the not seeing the poor that's the problem. Yeah, that's very good, very good. Yeah, Raymond. Well, it's a really, you've worked um, in private schools, is that right? You've worked in private schools, but your, your work now is very much tied up with the preferential option for the poor. All of my teaching life and headship was in state schools. I spent two wonderful years with the Catholic Independent Schools Conference. Um, and I can see on this call people at Paul Kite who, who are fantastic head teachers in, in that system. Um, so I, I've got I've got some. I've visited most of the um, independent Catholic schools in England, um, which 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 was a great um, honour. It's a vexed question, nevertheless. I mean, I think we have to continually ask ourselves the question: Are we perpetuating inequality? Um, are we are we offering paths of advantage? To pupils uh, because their families can pay for it. I think we, we constantly have to ask ourselves that question and it should give us some discomfort. Um, but nevertheless, you know, Catholic schools exist in that market. So can Catholic schools occupy a, a different place in that market? Yeah. And can yeah. they offer a different vision of, I, I, as we said, of the human community and, and the human person? Um, just briefly, I, I wish more people in Catholic education um, would refer to the documents of the church. Um, I mean, the, the documents of the, the, the Congregation for Catholic Education, uh, they seem to be largely forgotten. <laughs> the Catholic School 1977 says, and this is a bit nerdy, but it's a very short quotation, knowledge is not to be considered as a means of material prosperity and success, but as a call to serve and to be responsible for others. So I've seen this in our Catholic independent schools, no matter where the pupils come from and what their parents choose for them. And that's not their fault. <coughs> yeah. You know, they, 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 they can be formed and the best school, they are formed in the best of our Catholic independent schools with a vision of knowledge, which is not for their own material advantage, but is for service of others. And I've seen that very strongly in a lot of our schools. And at the heart of our vision for Catholic education is a radical vision, not of, not of maintaining the status quo, but of challenging the status quo. And again, a number of, another one of our documents, Lay, Lay Catholics in Schools, 1982. I'm looking at John Sullivan on the call, who over the years has brought 
so much of this to our attention and, and continues to do, John. It's lovely to see you. And in, in, that, in that document, it says, Catholic educators should work for ongoing social development to form men and women who will take their place in society and make the kind of commitment to work for the improvement of social structures, making these structures more conform to the principles of the gospel. It's not forming young men and women to be successful uh, materially. Uh, by all means, be a, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be a teacher, but be a good lawyer yeah. with a conscience and yeah. a vision of society that will challenge injustice and look to change society. So this is a radical invitation to change society, challenge injustice. And I, I think we downplay that quite, quite seriously. Yeah. Not, not in our private schools or independent schools. I think we downplay that generally in Catholic yeah. education. Thank you, Raymond. Um, Jenny, do you want to come in? Because Jenny, I know you have had uh, sons both at state and at private schools. Do you have anything? Y yes, yes, I do. Um, I've had it, had personal experience, and I've also worked um, across private and state state schools um, with, with my work with with Com Common Good and Catholic Social Thought. So I'd just like to add to every wonderful comments that we've had so far. I, I agree with everything that's been said, but also to say that. Um, it's about more than, much more than the preferential option for the poor. Um, as Raymond said, the, the Catholic social doctrine has not really um, found its way into uh, sort of everyday life of, of a school and, and often of a university. And one of the key things in, in Catholic social thought is the role of intermediary institutions. So a school and a university is an intermediary institution. And, and in, in Catholic terms, it should be building relationships with its neighboring institutions. So it's not just about giving to charity. The whole idea of, of being a Catholic in a school is not just about giving to charity and helping those who are poor in monetary terms. It's about building relationships of reciprocity and loving friendship. So that in, in a private school, which actually, by the way, in the UK, will, you know, will have to work much harder to prove their charitable status in years to come. They're going to have to build out better relationships with their neighboring institutions, perhaps with uh, state schools or with you know, other institutions locally, local businesses, uh, local charities and so on. So part of, part of the role of, of a Catholic institution, whether it's a school or university, is to take its part, take its vocational part in the world, in its local area, and not to be a bubble, just, just improving the, the lot of the, the, the children or the young people inside it, whether it's public or, or, or private. So there's this, this is definitely the sense of what is the vocation of the institution itself in, in relation to um, perhaps families and, and communities around it who may be struggling. And that, that is not just about outsourcing the problem to a charity by fundraising for that charity in order to help those people. It actually should be uh, creating opportunities for the young people in that institution to be forming relationships with people who happen to be poor. And that relationship should not be one of, you know, we're the benevolent giver, but a of a reciprocity that we actually learn from people who happen to be poor. This is what Pope Francis is talking about when he says no more proxies. You know, when we shouldn't be outsourcing this, we should be uh, putting ourselves personally in that position. That's that's a mark of being Catholic, mm. is, is to be in relationship with people who are, are having a difficult time at that moment. It may not always be like that. So it's about journeying together um, and accompanying people who, who happen to be struggling. It's a, it's a difficult thing. I was for some years on the pastoral board of a Catholic private school in North London and 
I was constantly saying we must reach out to the local state school and the local state school actually didn't really want to have anything to do with the private school. So it's, 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 it's challenging, but um, there's a comment coming from somebody in the audience, uh, Hayden, who says um, too much concentrated poverty and disadvantage makes a school or any institution dystopic and dysfunctional. So I just throw that out. I don't think we necessarily need to comment unless somebody wants to comment, but uh, uh, yes. Go Maggie, just to jump in on, on, on Andy, what you were just saying. One, one, one thing we must be um, alert to um, is, this, is this kind of chippiness about wealth and poverty because we're all rich compared to other people and poor compared to other people. And what you can't have is, um, is, is a state school kind of declaring itself getting some sense of moral self-satisfaction on the ground that it's got less money than a, than a private school um, and therefore patting itself on the back as not being alive to particular dangers. For example, um, again, back to the rich man and Lazarus. You could, I, I, I mean, my school, um, it's a state school, therefore we don't have much money. You know, the state doesn't have much money, but we're in an incredibly rich area of London. Um, now, there are very, very, very um, large houses around with, with effectively modern slaves walking at rich people's dogs in the morning. Um, do our pupils see that? Do, do, do they see what is going on? Um, so what, what must not happen is the poor must never turn into an abstraction. Um, that's the key point. That we must always um, see, the, see the poor around us and it must never degenerate into some sort of general principle which we can pat ourselves on the back. I'm not like them. Mm. Yeah, very good. Um, moving on, actually, Paul, this is this is another one for you to kick kick off on. Um, so it's very striking for anybody who has ever had children at Cardinal Vaughan Memorial School, uh, as I have, um, that when you look around the school, there are two sets of boards up uh, for you to look at, filled with names. One lot of the boards tells you which of the pupils have become priests and one lot of the boards tell you which of the pupils have got into Oxbridge. Um, Paul, which of these boards makes you feel more proud? Um, sadly, um, one board is festooned with names and one board isn't. Um, true, that's also true, yeah. Um, so the, the, the board with festooned with names doesn't give me more pride than the other one. I mean, no prizes for guessing which one it is, everyone. Um, but the question is um, how we can increase the amount of names on the other one. Um, there was a very, very sharp fall off in the, in the amount of Cardinal Vaughan uh, uh, boys who became priests um, from, from, from the early 70s onwards. Um, there seems to be a slow trickle um, beginning to reassert itself. Um, but I am most proud, I suppose, of that, of that new small trickle. Um, because I'll be straight, it's, it's, it's quite easy if you've got clever kids and you've got institutional momentum to get kids into top universities. Um, nurturing vocations is much more difficult. So, I, I, yeah, I'm more proud of the slow trickle, um, but I'm, I'm aware um, of, of the part that my institution needs to play into making it much more of a, a mini torrent. Mm, great. Rennie, um, how do you, I mean, following on from that, how do you prepare your students to balance the values of the world, which are success, personal advancement, competition, with the values of the kingdom? 
I think that picking up on something that Paul was saying, the most important thing that we can do within Catholic education is to prepare students for life. And that means to be, they need to be prepared not only for what they will do, but for who they will be. So the really focusing on each person, not being blind to their needs, but really understanding what each person needs and just how precious that person is in mm-hmm. God's eyes. If we, if we can open our own eyes to that, then I think as educators, we go a very long way indeed. Mm-hmm. So like Paul, I'd like to think that we would be preparing young people so that they would really be contributing in very overt and meaningful ways to the kingdom of God. But I see each each person is being called to do something quite special and privileged in God's eyes. So sort of opening them up to that vision, I think is really important. And when we start to talk about numbers and metrics, then I think that sometimes it can, you know, like Paul, I I would love to see more, more and more students, some of my own sons, maybe um, becoming priests, going into religious life and really seeing this as something that is so fulfilling we have this real problem in our society that people don't see the priesthood and religious life as a wonderful fulfilling way of life anymore so somehow we need to open up imaginations Mm -hmm. so that people can see that um, you know that vision that we have from the second vatican council that we're all working together with the gifts of the Mm -hmm. spirit and each of us will do this in different ways i suppose my fear when we're with that tension between the secular world, if I could put it that way, and the world of the kingdom of God is that um, the secular world has so far darkened the vision of the priesthood that it's no longer an attractive option. So there are priests in Spay out there who may never become priests because they don't actually see it as an option. So how is it that we open up their eyes so that they can actually hear the call and respond to the call. Lovely, thank you very much, Jenny. Um, just picking up on what Renee was saying there, I, th- I think this notion of vocation, um, I, I, I hope it's going to be, it's widening. I hope, and it's, I hope people are getting a sense that it's much wider than the priesthood, which is of course really important. But I think um, particularly as we're moving in, in, into this synodality phase uh, in the church, which hopefully is going to become the way the church will be, um, there's a sense of every every one of the people of God, every one of us has a calling, has a vocation. Yeah. And, and I think one of the roles of um, certainly leaders in, in universities and, and in sixth forms in, in Catholic schools and colleges is um, a kind of leadership that can spot vocation, that can spot those, those little stirrings of the Holy Spirit beginning to work in a young person's life and to nurture that and to learn how to call it out uh, and I just wanted to add as well a, a point about uh, university, you know, going on into, to getting degrees and so on. I think certainly in this country, there's, there's been a problem in the last uh, 25 years or so of an overemphasis on, on academic achievement as opposed to vocational um, colleges and, and vocational training. And I think because of Catholic tradition has such a strong understanding of the dignity of work and, and the labor interest, um, it's very important that, that Catholic institutions um, promote that and encourage their young people um, that, that it's not just the gold standard of the degree, of the academic degree, but there are different pathways that, that allow our vocations to take to, to bear fruit. Okay, I'm going to stop you there, Danny, yeah. because we're ticking away. Raymond, can, um, can we be quite brief? 
Oh, it's such a great discussion. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I mean, with I love with Paul. You always get honesty from Paul. Thank you, Paul. And you know, I, I'm part of me is scandalised by that 19th century honours board that um, it only elevates those two options. Um, and I, th I think it's 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 all about you know deepening our understanding of the human vocation, what it is to be a human being, which is to be loving and caring and care for the earth and be an image of God. And, and aspiration. I mean, I, 20 years ago when I became a head teacher, I fell into the trap of saying to boys and girls who are misbehaving, if you don't sort yourself out, you'll end up like your dad, stacking shelves and saying, now I said that to my shame. And in lockdown, we suddenly decided that the people stacking shelves and driving the vans were important people. So it's, it's what we value and who we value and what we give value to. We want priests, we want religious, you know, we don't want to kind of idolise Oxbridge as the, on, the only path towards an education. Or well, yeah. university is the only path in education, as, yeah. as Jenna said. So, yeah, I mean, a great discussion. And I, I better stop there because I'm... Okay. And a conscious yeah, time, well, Maggie. Um, yeah, okay, we'll crack on. Timothy Radcliffe, I'm sure you... Rennie, do you know who Timothy Radcliffe is? I'm sure the others do. Uh, I've interviewed uh, him. The he's, a, he's a Dominican um, uh, in, at Blackfriars in Oxford. And he's a really kind of extraordinary preacher, a very, very charismatic and, and writer. Um, he's recently had a really enormous operation, but he's now preaching again, even more powerfully than before, I think. <clears throat> he said recently this, this was in a piece he wrote in the tablet. We are called to live the tension between the convictions of the church and the questions of the world. So what is the responsibility of Catholic educators when they find that the moral teachings of the church are out of step with the young people in their care? Rennie. Well, the, the, um, the work of the educator is to help them to understand the convictions of the church and why it is that the church believes what she believes and to really walk the walk with those students as they're struggling. It is becoming increasingly difficult to do so I'm very aware of that but I think that Catholic educators really go amiss when they start to apologize too much or apologize at all really for what the church says instead it's really up to us to understand ourselves what the church says to understand that vision that we started talking about which is the vision of the human person that that anthropology that is so much really under pressure at the moment um, that we are made for love but that love is not simply desire, that they're all, all sorts of forms of love. And to, to really see that our human identity is a very rich, um, a very rich unfolding that, that we come to know and that our freedom is actually in receiving ourselves as we are from God and, and, and appreciating that we can, we can give to others. And, and in that way, um, through the relationships that Jenny has been talking about so beautifully, really touch people's lives. And I think that um, the educator needs to somehow understand the church's vision and translate it into our own age, but without watering it down and really meet people where they are at, especially yeah. our young people, meet them where they're at, try to understand where they're coming from and, and then, you know, walk that journey with them. Easier said than done. But I, but I think that it's a mistake to, to think that, that our young people aren't up to the challenge. Yeah, Paul, I think you would completely agree with that, wouldn't you? Me meeting people where they're at is, is your sort of mantra, really, isn't it, in this area? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, the it goes back to what was said at the, at the beginning about the, the job of a Catholic educator is, is, to, is to present the unchanging truths of reality um, um, to young people who live in an ever-changing world. And the world is changing more and more rapidly. Um, and to be blunt, um, they're getting more and more and more, um, I'll, I'll put it euphemistically, sceptical um, about, about the teachings of, of the church as, they, as, as it currently stands. Um, what we must not do um, is, is, is to um, parade the truth of the church around as if some sort of banner um, to move around for, for everyone to look at, um, as if it's some sort of precious jewel to be taken out and revealed to everyone and then put back in a box. Um, because if the, if the church is a teaching church, as in it is, it must correspondingly be a learning church and a listening church. And what we need to do as Catholic educators, we need to listen to what the pupils are saying and where they're coming from and not just tell them they're wrong, because often they're not. They're seekers after the truth, like all of us. They're, they're human persons. Um, but what we must do um, is be prepared to, um, to have the courage of our own convictions um, and, to, and to stress test the church's views and their views. Because if you take, I don't know, the church's teachings on, say, say homosexuality, it's um that, that 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 that's where it's all going on at the moment um and what you can't do is just start quoting leviticus at them um so you have to meet them where they are listen to what they say and stress test the views so that they can come where they can go out into civil society um with a properly constituted understanding of what they understand for whatever reason they understand it rather than something dogmatically accepted. And it is just as bad to dogmatically um, um, imbibe and regurgitate the teachings of the church as it is of, of the teachings of secularism. Great, thank you. Raymond. Um, it's probably a bit time we mentioned Jesus. Yes. Is that okay? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, here the, the um, uh, the, the teaching of the church, and, and we, we get this played out in the culture wars, the teaching of the church is held up as, as some almost an idol at times. But, you know, Benedict XVI says, we don't, the, the Catholicism is not, is not an idea or a set of ideas. I mean, Catholicism is an encounter with a person. Uh, and, and that person, we believe, was the word made flesh, you know, who walked among us, in love and showed her what it, what it meant to be a, a fully human being. Herbert McCabe said, you know, that Jesus was the first fully human being, the first one to live fully by love, non-violently. And that's why we had to get rid of him because he's far too, far too threatening. So it's that encounter. I mean, young people, in my experience, respond warmly to that encounter, yeah. you know, to the Jesus of the gospels. Yeah. And, and when I sat in a room, with a year nine girl who wanted to start year 10 as a boy with her social worker and mother. Um, the last thing I did was quote, as Paul said, Leviticus or any aspect of the church teaching, not that it is really helpful in this respect. I, I, I talked to a human being and we talked, uh, we, we, we walked together as Jenny said, and I went to my bishop and I said, Bishop, can you help me? What, what do I do here? There's, there's nothing in the in the A to Z book of, of Catholic education about what I do here. And he said, just make, make sure she's not bullied. 
just mm. just look look after them make That's sure cool. they're okay it was a pastoral response to a complex human need and mm. that paul models that every day in his school we model that every day in our schools we don't bash our kids over the heads with with uh with moral teachings we love them and that's, that's not a word that's, that yeah, that's lovely. <laughs> some people like to hear in the context of education, but that's it's absolutely the heart of what we're talking about. Um, there are now questions uh, coming in. And um, Jenny, I realise you haven't been in on that, that last one. So I'm going to put this question just to you uh, to answer briefly because we're running out of time and I've still got a couple of questions I'd love to ask. So uh, David in the audience says, for our Western culture, I believe that we have too many priests in England and Wales. There are more priests per head of the Catholic population than in most other Catholic countries. The problem is not the absence of priests, but the absence of a collaborative church. Importing more priests is likely to frustrate the emergence of a more synodal church. Well, I don't think anyone was suggesting importing priests, but um, Jenny, can you answer that very briefly? Um, I, I don't. I don't really agree. Uh, um, I, I think we need more of everybody. I think. I think you know we're on a synodal journey, and it's great to have priests and deacons and religious and lay people with vocations. Um, but can I just say something very briefly about the last question? Because I was yes, very briefly. Because then we're going to move on to the last one. Yeah. Sure. Just just to say that um, I agree with everything that was said, but also to help young people read the signs of the times, is, you know, to meet them where they are. And actually Catholic teaching is fantastic for this. And I find um, that when I work with, with young Catholics, they find uh, Catholic social thought to be a compelling framework to understand the world. It really, it really helps them to engage, um, but it's certainly a time to teach it better. And, and that's why we've developed programs for young people and, and for lay people to help them understand, uh, to get them in, into this framework of understanding the world. And we do it through the language of the common good. But, uh, but def definitely in terms of the question you just asked, um, I, I, I think it's actually something really valuable about what we call reverse mission, about bringing priests in from other parts of the world. They may be coming from Africa, from India, with a different cultural approach, which, which could actually enrich our communities and enliven the church. And that doesn't necessarily mean a more clerical model. It might well mean that it's more joyful. It might mean that it's, you know, they bring, bring practices that, that our uh, waning congregations uh, could do with a little bit of energizing. So I think there's a massive change going across the church and this, this is God at work. God is doing a deeply profound thing at the moment right across the world, not just with the Catholic church, but the whole Christian family. So I think we need to embrace this change and it's going to look different. It's going to feel different. That means we may lose some things, but we're going to gain so much. So I'll stop okay. there. Thank you, Jenny. Um, Amanda, I just want to check that we haven't got more questions there that I'm not seeing. I don't, I don't think there are any more questions, are there? No. no okay. in, which case, um, in which case, I think we probably only have time for one more uh, question to all of you. Um, so uh, I know that Paul um, became a Catholic as a result of working at uh, Cardinal Vaughan Memorial School, as a result of being surrounded by uh, Catholic young people. And I wanted to ask each of you to reflect um, on how you are sustained and inspired in your faith by younger people. Uh, Rennie. Young people have this determined curiosity 
that when you start to work with them so that they ask richer and deeper questions, you start to question yourself more and more. And I think that that's something that is, uh, it's so wonderful and so irreplaceable. And uh, we've just started up a semester here and I was just talking with a colleague today and she was talking about how she was dealing, she was working with some first year students and was introducing to them the ideas of freedom and determinism and, and all these different things. And she said, they just got so excited. <laughs> and I think that that's what young people can do for us. They can make us so excited about this whole thing of knowledge and that can help us to wonder at just how amazing um, it is to be humans who are truth seekers. And that helps us then to reflect on who it is who made us to be truth seekers. And I think that that just then opens up this whole understanding of God that is absolutely irreplaceable. So there's something about their their vivacity, their intensity that that once it's set alight, I think uh, it keeps us all young. I'm I'm pretty sure where um, the youngest people in uh, are, are those in education <laughs> because they're constantly surrounded by that that vibrant life and and capacity for love. That's great to hear, Raymond. The young people have got a great heart for justice and a great natural sense of justice and honesty. Uh, and the less interested in adult um, compromise. When I, I was the CEO of a mat, uh, and I said, "Right, everybody, let, let, let's 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 get into Laudato Sea. This is the thing. We're, we're we're going to take this seriously." And a few months later, I got a letter from a group of pupils in year six. I said, "Dear Mr. Field, tell us about tell us about your office. Tell us about how you get to work. Uh, tell tell us about what you do with your paper and your plastic and your." And I was like, well, they, they put me on the spot. You know, they, they, they asked a direct question. I said, well, you know, I replied to them. I said, you, you, your, your, your question has made me think because actually I wasn't doing what I was asking you to do. So thank you for holding me to account. And it was that honesty and holding to account of young people, which is absolutely inspiring. Mm, great. Uh, Paul. Young people never change. Um, I've been here for um, 33 years, so I'm, I'm kind of the perfect control experiment. Their parents have changed. Um, you know, their, their, their concerns and, their, and, their, and their, 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 the general way that they interact with the school has altered over time. That's a whole other conversation. Um, they're still nice, but there are differences. Um, young people, um, so a, a young person today in 2022 is no different from in 1988 when I first set foot in this place. They're just the same because they're newer human beings um, than adults and they haven't been worn down and trammeled by the world and its concerns and all the rest of it. Um, and so nothing depresses me more and is nothing's more untrue than when people say, um, I don't know, kids these days, you know, Kids these days are kids. They've, they've, they've always been identical, and therefore they and 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 building what everyone else is saying. They're full of um, enthusiasm. They're truth seekers, and so they point to me. Um, uh, they point the way to what 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 human persons are. They're newer than the rest of us, um, and therefore they're more pure. Lovely, Jenny. Yeah. So my my experience of working with young people tells me that. There's a deep hunger for the interior life and a great deal of frustration with um, the kind of institutional church model that we're, we're currently living with. And I, that's not an argument against it because I like it, it suits me. But I can also see that they are desperate for a deeper sense of participation. And um, 
there's also also want to say that I, I agree with Paul that, that young people are always the same. However, there are conditions at the moment that are different. So the, the 18 to 24 age group is in fact statistically the most lonely, lonelier than old people. There's a great sense of atomization. You might have 500 friends on Facebook, but feel lonely. There's a, a, a difficult uh, stage that we've reached in our culture and young people are, you know, bearing the brunt of it. So I think there's a great need for, again, accompaniment, relationship, um, providing a pretext for young people who may be lonely to come into a situation of meeting other young people. I know Father in, David- In which you can then be inspired by them. That's, yeah. Well, exactly. There's this reciprocity again. And if, if we don't listen to young people, we're not hearing where the new energy is, where the Holy Spirit is calling the church to notice um, how, how it needs to develop in the modern era. We are in a new era. Pope Francis noticed this seven years ago. A number of us have noticed it in, in political and social terms. Mm. And, and so if we, if we just keep on doing the same thing, you know, again and again, it's, it's not going to work. And the young people are driving us forward. They're leading us forward with the questions they ask. And it, it challenges, brilliant challenge. We have to keep on. Yeah. I'm going to come in because we have literally two minutes left. I have one final question and I think I can only put it to one of you because we just haven't got any more time. Uh, so Raymond, I'm going to ask you to answer this one. So we have all of us uh, watched the horrible unfoldings of the ICSA trials. Uh, and I know Rennie, you know, Australia hasn't been free wonder whether Catholic education had lost its credibility altogether. What further steps can schools and universities take to restore trust? And you literally have one minute, sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure it's Catholic education. I think the Catholic Church <coughs> has lost a lot of moral authority and credibility, not because of the terrible things that happened, but because of the subsequent cover-ups. Um, I think education, I mean, it, it, you know, my, my reading of it is, you know, that the most uh, terrible crimes were perpetuated in, in um, residential um, Catholic schools run by religious orders or other, other houses in the state sector. I know Paul, you know, lives this and breathes this every day. I mean, when I left Catholic uh, secondary school, safeguarding was exemplary. You know, we, we took, I mean, we lived and breathed a culture of safeguarding, you know, um, as we should, as we all should. But I think in the Catholic state sector, children are, are safe, valued, happy uh, and nourished. At ICSA, I don't think there's got anything uh, by way of damage for the Catholic state education. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, well, we're bang on 9.58. Um, you've all been absolutely fantastic. And I think Amanda will want to take back the reins at this point. Thank you.